Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll take a manned trip to Mars. And we'll see how poison can be used to save lives. NASA, the American space agency, is sending humans to Mars. But they don't want to go alone. They want it to be an international cooperative effort because it's such a huge undertaking. It may be the most difficult thing humans have ever done. In order to do the most difficult thing humans have ever done, you need a lot of training. And before you can even start training, you need to work out the curriculum. The man in charge of working out the curriculum for NASA is Dr. Pascal Lee, chairman of the Mars Institute, a planetary scientist with the SETI Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, and director of the Horton Mars Project at the NASA Ames Research Centre. Dr Pascal Lee has been in Australia giving talks hosted by the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics about who, what, where, how and why humans are going to Mars. Hello Dr Lee, this is Ian Wolfe calling from 2SCR in Sydney. Hey, good to talk to you. This manned mission to Mars, what's the first step? Well, the first step is a commitment to send humans to Mars. And the, the undertaking, of course, is, is in some sense monumental uh, and probably beyond the reach of any single nation today. But on the other hand, I think the value of going to Mars is to do it together. Uh, it, it's the fact that you would be undertaking uh, an exploration expedition uh, in space uh, with a group of nations that are, that are wanting to commit to this kind of investment. Uh, it would be a technological investment. It would be an incredible international cooperation throughout. And and this is what it would take to achieve a human mission to Mars. So uh, it could bring everybody together? It could bring everybody together in a positive way, uh, in a way that uh, would foster uh, open exchange. It would help uh, advance technologies and, and our know-how. It would advance our, our scientific understanding of the cosmos. It would uh, engage universities and students uh, throughout the world. And the beauty of it is that it could be essentially uh, the, the Apollo experience, but shared by a planet, really, uh, in terms of its benefits and, and, uh, and positive returns. So on the benefits and returns, this is the question I'm sure everybody asks you, why are we going to Mars? Well, you know, uh, first of all, the, the, the given is that we are going to continue doing things in space. Mm-hmm. not an option for, for the spacefaring nations not to continue sending humans in space and having a, a substantial program that will cost them a substantial amount of their, of their uh, gross national product. And the thing is, uh, what do you do then, uh, given that you have to maintain a presence in space and you're going to continue doing things in space? The reason why we need to continue doing things in space at all is because we have to maintain uh, a leadership uh, in, in technology, in, in our ability to, to, to travel in space, uh, in our overall industrial know-how, 
Uh, and so these are these are strategic importance to all the nations that are uh, spacefaring or have a space program. So with that as a given, uh, the question then is, well, what do you do with this need to, to maintain uh, a presence and leadership in space? And a mission to Mars has the advantage of being very well defined. Certainly it would represent a long-term commitment, possibly a decade or two of, of work together at the very least. And it would be very significant because it would be about advancing the frontiers of knowledge about life, the possibility of life on other planets. It would be a definitive uh, driver of, uh, of creating new capabilities for space travel. We would, be, we would have to create space travel systems that would an, allow us to be in space for longer times, to go into space for greater distances. It would really represent the logical step beyond going to the moon. And I guess we don't get all those international cooperation benefits from just sending robots. Well, that's right. And the other thing is that robotic exploration serves a very good purpose. It answers short-term, immediate questions, if you will, that we might have about these planets uh, that we send robots to. But the issue of the search for life on Mars is a complex question. It's not something that is necessarily going to be well advanced by robotic exploration uh, for much longer. First of all, it's not just a matter of whether or not Mars might have life. Even if we found life on Mars today, what really is important is to understand what we have found. Is it terrestrial life that somehow was transferred from the Earth to Mars? Or is it somehow a, an ancestor of life on Earth that we might have found on Mars? In other words, we, we could be finding life on Mars that is actually connected and related uh, genetically to life on Earth, given that Mars and the Earth are not isolated worlds. We, we have meteorites, for example, that have come naturally from Mars to the Earth. They were blasted off of Mars by, by asteroid and comets, hitting Mars, uh, impacting Mars, and over time, rocks have been transferred from Mars to the Earth, and therefore possibly microbes uh, that would have been lodged inside these rocks. Uh, similarly, uh, we might have had Earth rocks travel all the way to Mars and to other planets. And so uh, first, that's one of the big lessons, in fact, of uh, solar system exploration, uh, and that is that planets are not isolated systems. Uh, and therefore, if we found life on Mars, it's not uh, in itself uh, that extraordinary a find. What would be extraordinary is if we found a form of life on Mars that is unrelated to life on, on Earth, something that would represent a, a separate genesis of life. And, and that is going to be something that's very difficult to, to both find and establish. And I have to view that we will need humans to be on Mars to, to really, well, first of all, search the planet and, and then investigate what is found. And that would be in itself a, a fantastic activity for humans on Mars. How long will it take us to get to Mars? It would take, uh, with the conventional existing uh, rocket technologies at this point, anywhere from six to nine months to get there. And then depending on the trajectory that you are taking, you might need to commit to a presence of either a month and a half or so, or a year and a half. And then you would come back to the Earth on another six to nine months journey. And so the total duration uh, of, a, of an expedition to Mars would be two and a half years. And in some sense, that sounds like a, a long time, and it certainly is for, for spacecraft mission because you are needing to have spacecraft uh, technologies that are going to be reliable on that time scale. The space station, for example, is resupplied and, and repaired quite frequently, and it certainly is not left to its own devices for, for two and a half years without, without any repair. In order to create the spacecraft, architecture that will allow you to go to Mars, you will have to really improve the reliability of the spacecraft systems. And, and that in itself will be a tremendous technological leap 
for those nations that would undertake this. But the other thing is that two and a half year journey is not that long either. That's the other way to look at it because it would be commensurate to what other exploring expeditions were, were committed to in the past. And it's certainly not something that uh, is beyond human capability to survive. And on that survival, how will the astronauts be protected against solar radiation in space? That's a good point. There are many specific hurdles that need to be understood and overcome in our endeavor to, to go to Mars. Space radiation is, is a central issue. We have to protect the astronauts from, from the damaging effects of long-term exposure to space radiation. Uh, there are solutions to this. Uh, number one, we can create within the spacecraft a, a particular sheltered area where astronauts would seek refuge in the case of a, of a particle storm or radiation storm that they might experience on their way to or from Mars. Another solution, which can be combined with the first one, is to surround the spacecraft with radiation-absorbing material. What turns out to be actually a very effective absorber of radiation is hydrogen or anything that contains hydrogen. So water, for example, contains hydrogen, H2O, and food, carbohydrates, contain hydrogen. And, and so a good uh, practical solution, in fact, to, to shielding astronauts on their journey to Mars would be to store the water and the food that they will consume uh, along the walls of the spacecraft uh, in which they will be traveling in. And there's actually a sidebar that's interesting to this, to this particular approach, which is the fact that as you go through your mission and you consume your food, you would have to, to replace it with, with essentially what food becomes after it's processed by humans. And, and so over time, you would have to uh, continually be sure that you keep surrounding yourself with, with human waste along the walls of your spacecraft. And, and that, of course, will, will be an interesting experience for the astronauts. So these astronauts that go to Mars will have to be made of pretty strong stuff. How are they going to be selected? That's as well a good point. Uh, we cannot really plan on sending a very large group of people to Mars because it would really increase the cost of such a mission dramatically. Uh, so if you consider a crew that might be made of, say, eight people, there are many more skills that need to be covered on a two-and-a-half journey to Mars than, than eight people can normally cover. You have to have people who can fly the spacecraft, repair the spacecraft, repair spacesuits, be scientists who, to really understand geology and, and possibly microbiology of Mars. You would want people who can cook, who can be medical doctors, who can be communications experts and computer uh, systems administrators and repairmen. So there are really many skills that need to be covered on a human mission to Mars. And so the consequence of this is that the crew members will have to be thoroughly cross-trained in a number of disciplines. They'll have to be, in fact, not just jacks of all trades, but aces of all trades, of many trades. And this means that you are likely to have astronauts who are fairly seasoned people. Uh, during the Apollo program, the age of the moonwalker astronauts were, was uh, sort of the mid-30s. I would not be surprised if uh, when it came time to send humans to Mars, we'd be looking at crew members, at crews whose average age might be in, in, the, in the early 50s, just because it just takes that much time, even for smart people, to acquire experience and, and training in, in so many different fields and, and to, to become experts at them. And where uh, are you training these people for the, this really harsh environment they're going to encounter in space and on Mars? So uh, as far as training people, you'll have to look at different phases of the mission. There's the space flight phase as well itself, and you might consider training people on the International Space Station in Earth orbit so that they become experts at uh, repairing their spacecraft along the way to Mars or back. 
And then you will also have to train them to be experts at exploring the surface of Mars. And so this is where the project that I've been working on really comes in, which is to, to find places on the Earth where we can really adequately train astronauts and, in fact, learn ourselves how to do productive Mars exploration on the ground. Uh, during the moon program, we were on the moon for very short stays, just a few days at a time. We were not driving very far away, even when we had a rover. Uh, as we contemplate this return to the moon in the short term and, and our journeys to Mars beyond, we will be looking at several hundred stays on the moon or Mars, during which we will want to venture out to distances of hundreds of kilometers, possibly, from our landing site. These types of excursions on the moon or Mars will really be expeditions within an expedition. And it will be essential to train the crew members in how to conduct an expedition. A test pilot, for example, no matter how good a pilot this person is, is not necessarily uh, trained to, to lead an expedition on the ground you know, with a rover. These are a different set of skills that will require simply time for the crews to train on. And you've been training in the Arctic and the Antarctic for this sort of thing, I believe. Well, what the work that we do, we are not wanting to qualify it as training. We are really in the learning phases. We, we have been drawing lessons uh, from past expeditions, of course, and for our, from our own over the years to define exactly what will be needed for the astronauts in the future. When I try to explain what my line of work is about, it, it's about imagining into the future what future explorers on the moon and Mars will need, what they will need to be effective explorers, to be scientifically productive, to be safe at what they do. And of course, you can learn many lessons from, from past accounts of, of polar explorers, etc. But truth is, exploring the moon and Mars will require that kind of experience, plus an entire body of work that is specific about preparing for the moon and Mars. And so all these lessons have yet to be learned, in fact, in, in a basic way for NASA and for all the other space agencies that are looking at going back to the moon and Mars. So we're putting together essentially the curriculum, if you will, of what uh, future astronauts will, will need to train on. Wonderful. I'm often asked the question, why do we spend so much money in space when there are so many problems to, to be worked on, on the Earth and, and to be solved? And I think the best answer to this question is that, first of all, the money is not spent in space. It's spent here on Earth in bettering ourselves, in our universities, in our factories, in creating new technologies and in becoming a better society and, and, uh, and a more technologically advanced society. Space is also presenting us with such a challenge that it, it almost forces us to be unified and collaborative in our approach to space exploration. I think as we look back, gone are the days or should be the days of competition in space. It's time that humanity comes together and uh, work together in, in what will take no less than that to explore Mars. And, and it's something that should be done for the benefit of all mankind and will be of benefit to all mankind if, if we undertake such a journey. So in a profound sense, it's a, it's a great investment in our future and it will open new frontiers for, for human endeavors. Dr. Pascal Lee, thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. Pascal Lee is chairman of the Mars Institute, a planetary scientist with the SETI Institute's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and director of the Horton Mars Project at the NASA Ames Research Centre. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Associate Professor Graham Nicholson 
from the Department of Molecular and Medical Biosciences in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, is finding ways to use toxins from poisonous animals such as spiders and snakes. I think the most recent and exciting work is more to do with the insecticidal research. So we've over the years been collecting a variety of different sources of venoms, mostly spider venoms in fact, and looking at isolating the the active components within the venom and then seeing whether we can find toxins that are highly insecticidal, in other words they kill insects, but uh, don't have any activity on vertebrates, mammals, fish, because uh, fish is a big issue in agricultural areas. Because you get runoff, don't you? Yeah, you get runoff of the insecticides into the streams and uh, fish are particularly susceptible to the conventional agrochemicals that we use. If you look at the unintended consequences. Yes, we're basically selecting the agents based on their insect toxicity, but we do have to confirm that they don't have vertebrate activity as well. And over the years, we've identified a number of different families of toxins. So it's not just single entities, they're they're groups of toxins. And many of those are now being taken up by biotech companies and developed, uh, hopefully, into insecticidal agents. And some of these toxins work through the ion channels in the cells? Yeah, so essentially in the nervous system of insects, and, and humans for that matter, we rely on these pores through the nerve cell membranes to actually signal information from one nerve cell to another. And uh, most of the the compounds that we've been looking at actually target these ion channels. So there's different subtypes of channels uh, and we've got particular types of peptide toxins that target one or multiple types of these ion channels. So would these lock them or jam them open? The major ones that we've looked at so far tend to block them and without that ability to open the channel any, any longer, typically they're causing a depression of the, the nervous system, so the animal becomes paralysed. Depending on which ion channel you're looking at, you can actually get some excitatory behaviour, so they go into these sort of convulsions and contractile-type paralysis. Some do actually modulate the activity of ion channels, and the ones that have dual activity, the ones on insects as well as primates like humans, Um, are ones that actually modulate and cause the channel to open and stay open and cause a lot of repetitive firing and intense stimulation of the nervous system. So the ones, for example, that are found in male Sydney funnel web, the one that the lethal component of the the venom is one that sort of jams these channels open. So... The toxins themselves, do they just jam it open or do they modulate things so that when they open, they stay open? Yeah, more more the latter. So the, the channel opens as it would normally. There's very few changes in the what we call the activation process. But uh, once open, normally these channels close automatically within a few milliseconds. And these toxins prevent that from happening. So the, the channel stays open. There's a lot of, in this case, sodium enters the the nerve cell and that causes a lot of depolarization, which leads to sort of excitation of the nervous system. And that leads to the symptoms of funnel web envenomation. Uh, Right. Lots of activity in skeletal muscle. We get twitching of the skeletal muscle. We get a lot of secretion of glands, so salivary glands and tear glands and things like that, and as well as cardiovascular effects as well. Some patients who've been envenomated, not so much with spider venoms, but snake venoms, for example, they can get changes in their sensation of smell and taste. 
There's some unusual sort of sensory things that you get with redback envenomation, the sort of in, feeling of an impending doom, but that's probably to do with changes in cardiovascular function. Right. Um, so the the drop, uh, the initial rise in blood pressure and uh, subsequent drops in blood pressure that you see with some of the other spiders probably produce those sort of sensory uh, feelings, if you like. Um, right. But it's not a direct action on the sensory nervous system. It's mostly to do with the motor system, which is a so-called efferent part of the, the nervous system, and controlling muscles, skeletal muscles, smooth muscle, cardiac muscle, things like that, and glands. You can have your doom is on the way, which it might be if you don't get the antivenine in time. Well, yes. The snake venoms are sort of a quite different class, you know, completely different beast, really. The snake venoms are more about affecting skeletal muscle activity, so the way in which we breathe and move and, and things like that, as well as affecting the sort of coagulation of the blood. Sometimes it prevents coagulation, sometimes it actually induces coagulation of blood. So they're a completely different kettle of fish, and, hmm. uh, and we don't use those for insecticidal agents. We, right. We're not looking at developing those there's probably very little in the way of insecticidal, selective insecticidal activity in, in snake venoms because insects aren't their, their no. normal prey. The spiders we've chosen to look at for insecticidal agents because essentially that's what spiders prey upon and you can find some highly insect-selective toxins in, in spider venoms. We've seen pictures on TV of them milking snakes of their venom, yep. but surely that's a, a lot more difficult. There's less to grab hold of on, on some of these little spiders. Yeah. With spiders, milking them sometimes can be quite trivial. Big spiders like funnel webs and some of the tarantulas will voluntarily produce the, the venom on the end of their, their fangs if you agitate them a little bit, and you can actually you know, suck that venom directly into a pipette or whatever. So it can be quite easy to, to actually get the venom out of these, these spiders. Sometimes, particularly with extremely small spiders, you actually have to sacrifice the animal and dissect out the venom glands to obtain the material. You really can't effectively milk them. But there are some ways of doing it electrically, but it's, it's quite fiddly. And you don't get much venom either. It's not like a snake, you know, where you're getting hundreds of milligrams in some cases. Here we're getting a few micrograms of material. So it's very, very small quantities. And then to extract the toxins that you want from the venom? Yeah, we have to separate that using liquid chromatography. So we use um, uh, HPLC, so reverse phase HPLC is what we tend to use. And what's that? Uh, basically, that's a way of separating components in a, in a complex mixture based on sort of the hydrophobic natures or hydrophilic natures of the components. So basically, we can pull apart the complex mixture, which in some cases can be over 2,000 components, and eventually purify single toxins, which we can then investigate. And basically, what we're doing is using bioassays to guide that sort of fractionation procedure. Knowing which of these fractions is important, the way we achieve that is to, to use insects and inject them as we go, as we start to separate these things and say, well, that component looks interesting because it's killed the insects very quickly. So we'll work on that component, purify it further until we've got the uh, single peptide toxin. Most of these are peptides. Is there something that could be a little bit automated? If you've got 2,000 compounds, do you have to test it 2,000 times on 2,000 insects? Uh, 2,000 is the, the sort of upper limit. Sure. Um, uh, some of the funnel web species, we 
just recently found have 2,000 components. Many of them are much, much more simpler than that. You can automate the process to some degree in that you can use fraction collectors and things like that to automate the collection of the material as it comes off the HPLC column. But you can't really automate the, the bioassay, the actual injection into the insect. So a lot of this is all manual work. And when you've got really complex mixtures, you've got to collect it by hand. It's, it's too difficult to separate these out using fraction collectors. The main reason we're looking at this, or what's driving this research, is that insects are becoming extremely resistant to many of the standard agrochemicals that we use in our environment. And a lot of those chemicals have serious side effects, potential side effects on humans and other non-target species. So we're really interested in looking for things that target novel parts of the nervous system, things that we haven't used previously. So that's been the, one of the driving forces for our, our insecticide research, looking for peptides that bind to novel targets in the insect nervous system. And we, we've come up with a couple, and they've actually been now taken up by a US bio, biotech company called Venomics. So they're looking at developing these as uh, insecticides for mainly for agricultural use, spraying them onto crops. Right, so that we can feed more people. Yes, that, I mean, that's one of the driving forces. Another driving force is, you know, dealing with the problems of uh, insect vectors that carry diseases like, you know, malaria or something like that. Um, because oh, right. many of the mosquitoes are already resistant to the, the standard chemicals. That's right. So people are resorting to dangerous things like DDT. Yeah, DDT is still used around the world. Not here in Australia, but third world countries, yes, DDT is still being used because it's extremely cheap. And it is very effective insecticide. The main problem is it's got huge environmental impacts through bioaccumulation and biomagnification, things like that. So certainly DDT is still used and we'd like to move away from that. That was Associate Professor Graham Nicholson finding ways to kill insects that spread disease and eat our food without harming the environment. And that's all from me in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise... If you'd like to contribute to Diffusion, come along and help me out. Hear your own voice, passionately communicating science on radio. Then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. On the program, you heard Dr. Pascal Lee and Associate Professor Graham Nicholson. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Here's a little of Jeff Wayne's musical version of War of the Worlds. Looking good. It's going good. We're getting great pictures here at NASA Control Pasadena. The landing craft touched down on Mars 28 kilometers from the aim point. We're looking at a remarkable landscape. It's littered with different kinds of rocks, red, purple. How about that, Bermuda? Fantastic. Look at the dune field. Hey, wait, I, I'm getting a no-go signal. Now I'm losing one of the craft. Hey, Bermuda, you getting it? I lost contact. A lot of dust blowing up there. 
Now I lost the second craft. We got problems. All contact lost, Pasadena. Maybe the antennas. What's that flare? See it? A green flare coming from Mars. Kind of a green mist behind it. It's getting closer. You see it, Bermuda? Come in, Bermuda. Houston, come in. What's going on? Tracking station 43, Canberra. Come in, Canberra. Tracking station 63. Can you hear me, Madrid? Can anybody hear me? Come in. Come in.